Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and one of the most well-known BJJ competitors today. Welcome to the show, the creator of the Trickle Plot himself, Tariq Hopsack. Hello, sir. Hey. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show, man. I've been following your work for a long time here and super stoked. So I like to start the show off talking about everybody's origin story. So you're originally from Oslo, Norway, correct? That's correct. And you had an interesting beginning. So you kind of, as far as martial arts goes, you started with judo. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So I, I started in a small gym. Uh, it's it's like, also it's the capital of Norway, so it's a pretty big city. But the gym that I was training judo at was like training twice a week, pretty much. And, and that's where it all started, where I started like kind of getting the sense for martial arts and eventually i got invited to some jiu-jitsu by a friend of mine a classmate to be real and then he introduced me to this new side of newaza that i've never seen before and and it was it was pretty cool and you never look back <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know uh well, yeah that was frontline correct the academy frontline that's right at what point did you realize as far as the newaza side turning into jiu-jitsu here when did you realize that you just kind of fell in love with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? I mean, like, obviously you have the respect and the discipline side that comes with all martial arts, I feel. And, like, the thing that really, like, captured me in one sense was the social part of it. It was very, like, good relationships from the get-go that I had with all my friends there. Teta, our coach, he was always super cool, followed us through the whole way. Eventually, when we got a little bit better in the like uh, kids' classes, he would push us to do the grown-up classes right after, and, and <laughs> like I would get beat up day in and day out. And I I actually remember till this day like that one class when I was like, oh shit, I didn't get <laughs> tapped out this whole session, <laughs> you know, like just like surviving was the mission. It would surprise me like how much there was to learn from the start, you know, and just kept learning more and more and. Till to this day, I still feel like there's always more to learn, and that really drives me to keep going. That's amazing. Yeah, I know everybody gets so divided. So it's like here's a beginner's class only, here's a kids' class, here's a whatever, you know, advanced class. So yeah, who you're under is Eduardo Rios or Tita. What's interesting about that, and you could kind of maybe go into that aspect, maybe how much did that help you, I suppose, expedite your knowledge and application and training by going into the adult classes like that? For sure. I mean, as a kid, you know, like I would say I, I was physically more, <laughs> I had better attributes than most of the kids that were there. So like if you put me in the kids group, I could kind of get away with a lot of the physicality part of it. You know, I could explode out of positions and all that. And then you go over to the grown up class where a girl that was like pretty much shorter than me was beating me, taking my back, choking me out, you know, like all that. And then that's when you really like understand there's more to it than just using your athleticism and, and, and being crazy about it. For me, at least that was an eye opener for sure. And already there, like the people, the grownups, they were super nice. They were taking us under their wing, showing us stuff in between the rounds, you know, like, ah, this was the choke I did on you, you know, all those things. And I would say like all those small things, they make a huge difference in the end. Oh, for sure. And the thing I like to ask a lot on this show with everybody is what does an average week of training look like for you? Whether it's jujitsu, cardio, fitness, all of the above. So an average week of training. Um, so I usually train uh, jujitsu twice a day, Monday to Friday. And then on 
Saturday and Sunday, I have like maybe one session a day and Sundays I usually take a rest. And other than that, I do have a strength and conditioning, which is on uh, Tuesday, Thursdays and Fridays. So that's how my schedule is set up right now. It's like you could move it a little bit around to optimize it, but then, mm -hmm. you know, like there's always something else and there's family and there's stuff like that, that I have to keep uh, right. in balance as well. But yeah, that's, that's been my schedule now the past, at least now going up towards worlds. And is this all you do? Like, is this like the job of an athlete, so to speak? Right now? Yeah, I live off of jujitsu 100%. So before this year, I was doing some side jobs, like as a substitute teacher, and I was doing some as a lifeguard at a swimming pool and ocean. So I was doing like, a lot of different stuff. You know, at some point, I was also cleaning the academy just to make enough uh, living off of everything all these jobs kind of came with the pandemic so when i realized oh, i yeah. couldn't do all those things that i want and then i had to just like step up my game and <laughs> just find other work to do you know and at the same time that did also push me over to like start youtube channels start doing other things you know filming stuff creating different like revenues basically and so right now, I pretty much from already October last year, I started getting so many like seminars planned for the new year. And then I knew like things were starting to pick up after the pandemic. So that's when I like decided, okay, so then I can like leave all the other jobs and focus on jujitsu. That's amazing. And, you know, let's compare and contrast those two things because you have, you know, like the regular kind of jobs you get. Being an athlete's not the most normal <laughs> job line. So what is that like for you as far as being a professional athlete versus your run-in-the-mill kind of job? Well, I mean, still in jiu-jitsu, you, as a professional athlete, you still have to, you, you have to find ways to make an income. That's not going to be just you performing. So you have to actually teach. You have to make instructionals. You have to do those things. So I think as it is right now, you won't make enough money to live off of it if you're just competing and performing right yeah. uh obviously like you have sponsors sponsors will pay you like some monthly fees but it's never going to be a full salary at least not for me right now so that's why you have to balance it with some teaching as well gotcha and it's never an easy thing so <laughs> <laughs> now let's get into the Tariko plata you know it's kind of first introduced to the jiu-jitsu world when you're a blue belt and i'm going to play like a little video here of which please talk over it and kind of Go a little oh, critiques yeah. on how you created it and how it evolved. <laughs> okay, let me see. Yeah, this is from Swedish Open back in 2016, I believe. 15 or 16, one of those. Uh, 2015, yeah. Yeah, 15, yeah. And so this was when I really started to get a hold of it. And mm -hmm. I had this setup. I got it eight times in this competition. Wow. But again, at this point, nobody knew what this was. So I felt like I was facing a lot of people who were clueless to the position. Oh, okay. So definitely like that was the one big advantage in these fights. Like nobody knew about this position. Oh, interesting. I mean, it makes so much sense too, because otherwise <laughs> you're fighting like a dog fight just to get to your setup. Now, did it come up like you were initially trying to get a Kimura and then it was tough to get around and you want to use yeah. the legs? Like, how'd that develop for you? Yeah, pretty much. So, like, I'm a big fan of Dars strokes. And, okay. and so I would like do a knee cut into a Dars a lot of the times, and people would start, you know, pulling their back out and they would defend the Dars choke. And then I would end up in a top Kimura or like, 
they call it also the dwarfin control so like when i'm there i did pretty much a lot of weird things i started like deadlifting people i started like trying to throw myself in an arm bar you know just do whatever and then in the end what i found out was like throwing this leg over could this be it you know <laughs> and it was funny because i remember that time when i was like testing it out and after class i was like talking with some of the higher belts on the side and they were like no i don't know you're exposing the back it might not work you know we, we were skeptical like at that point we were we were calling it something completely else we're calling it gigolopata and oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a very experimenting kind of project where i probably you know you look at it you see it does it work doesn't it you know you toss it or you put it on the shelf for a while and then maybe you take a look at it again some other time and you know eventually i just ended up in that position over and over and over time through a lot of trial and error I started developing a little bit of the details and what actually okay. helped me like maintain the position and also establish top control. And like, even if I fall to the bottom, how can I roll up to the top again? And then once that like, kind of like, you know, the core was in place and I understood how the submission worked, I started like picking up more entries, different places to go into that little core. And that's when it really started going <laughs> awesome man it's amazing it's starting to click yeah you just kind of find your way and before we dive into other compare and contrast things here whether going on top is kind of seems like the ultimate kind of position to finish this but it's also off your back and cutting things over and, and turning it to rust you saw in that video and i just want to promote you do have a bgz fanatics the trico plata which is amazing you also have a footlock series on there as well but you kind of go for people real quick if they're on their back versus on top your mindset uh so so if they're on top usually they will roll to defend it and that's mm -hmm. when you end up on top either way i mean some people might tap in that kind of scenario but i mean every, like 99 percent of the time people are going to roll to defend that so that's usually the <laughs> the case awesome and at what point when you're competing sparring or competing when you're going for the trico plata do you know this guy's done this is this is set in uh as soon as like you're in that top position and uh, you've like you've pulled their arm away from their body so you have full control and you're sitting on top of them it's hard for them to move that's when i know like at least i'm gonna go away damaging this guy or tapping him right. you know <laughs> yeah. no but it, it does happen people don't tap and they will yeah. let themselves get hurt and another thing is like there's always the chance that he explodes and bumps you out. And then yeah. if there's out of bounds or something like that, you might get two points or depends on the scenario. But definitely once that arm is out, that's when you know it's on. And you have some great video breakdowns on your YouTube channel. So let's talk about the big debate, Tariq. Uh, we got the Tariq Plata versus the Barada Plata. Let's yeah, go yeah, into yeah. our the compare, contrast, the differences. When to do one, when to do the other. So uh, there's different times you want to set up one or the other. So a Kimura will more naturally transition into Terracoplata. Like that's kind of the control that you're looking for with your legs anyway. So you're kind of like, I would say you're replacing one of your hands with your legs. So that's many ways you could call it the legs Kimura, right? That's yeah. what Gordon Ryan says, at least. <laughs> and whereas the Barato Plata is way more of a shoulder lock in the sense that you're turning the elbow forward. And uh, how should I say this? You're 
facing the person much more in this scenario. And you can combine the two. I like a lot of the times when I go for the Turkey Plata and they posture up and their hand slides from my knee to my crotch, then I will switch to like a Barata Plata instead. So they kind of go laced together sometimes, but the reason why it was kind of like versus or they they were split <laughs> apart in a sense was because people didn't see the difference. So there was this big misunderstanding when every time I posted a video, people call it Brata Plata and then and huh. uh, eventually it was like comment section was war where people were fighting <laughs> okay. each other over what is this? Is it this? Is it this? And still to this day, if you dive into some comment section, there's always some guy who <laughs> thinks it's a brata plata or or vice versa, and 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 uh, yeah. But that's jujitsu, right? Terminology yeah. is a big thing. Yeah, yeah, it's its own language, right? <laughs> in the end, in the end, it is. It really is. So as you're coming up through your training and competing, 2021, you get your black belt, which is amazing. What have been some of the biggest barriers you had to overcome? biggest barriers to overcome um i mean like coming back competing after pandemic was kind of like uh, i don't i don't know what i should feel right now you know <laughs> but i think it's a fun journey just like and there's Appreciate many forward. many things yeah there's many things ahead like i don't feel like i'm done at all i have like definitely like coming into the black belt division is a big step and there's all those big names and everything that you you're like maybe nervous but you want to fight these names because you want to test yourself and you want to see you know how it feels but at the same time you know i'm looking forward to fighting all these people and going to worlds going to adcc all these things so definitely bigger obstacles to come <laughs> Yeah, get the challenge. That's amazing. Your own personal journey. And right, like each person you go against is, uh, yes, I'm going against their skills and things they've worked on, but it's it's helping me improve myself. You kind of go as far as not just training and inspiring, but the competition side of things really helps you push forward your own improvement. For sure. And like if it's it's in the technical aspect, you can really look at your mistakes. You can really look at uh, the tactical mistakes you made, obviously, and then you can improve those. And I feel like that's the reality check going in competitions. But also for beginners, I say to all the people at my gym as well, if you've never competed and you want to like feel that feeling where it's really on the line and it really matters, then you should at least try competing once and you'll find a new side of yourself. It's a little part of self-realization part. I really like support or like I really push them to at least try it once, you know, but fair and fair. If you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. Well, hundred percent. Yeah. And I think another interesting aspect with that also comparable to live sparring, let alone competition is the losses you learn and grow from those losses. Everybody, everybody loses, but the importance to learn. What have been some of the biggest learning lessons along the way from specific from losses that has helped you? Oh man. Um, the deep questions now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I guess when I started getting into Brown belt, I started fighting a lot more bigger names and tougher guys. And that's when I realized I might not get submissions on everybody. And I can't just play, you know, I can't just play Tarko Plata. I can't just play belly down footlocks, even though like what, that's what I want to do is, is submissions, but you have to respect that there are points in the game. You have to, you have to create the scenarios where they're eager to 
get points back and that's what's going to expose them to those submissions because if they're leading on points or if it's even you might not be able to open them up and get into those positions so you really have to get that tactical aspect so i guess like around brown black that's that's what uh, one of the biggest things i really realized is you know 10 minutes is not enough to tap anyone out uh, like everyone out you know yeah yeah, that's an interesting side of the mindset of things for competition and pulling things off live and improving as you go. What are some of your biggest motivations as far as being a competitor, being a professional athlete? What motivates you to do this? I mean, I have fun. I love yeah. doing it, uh, <laughs> the sport and, and learning the process. And, uh, you know, also till this day, I'll learn new stuff, which is really interesting to me to, you know, look at other people's games, other people's styles and take them to me, you know, and also like try to learn that. And then I even like teach it to some of the, my students and then I'll try to make them do that to me, you know, and, yeah. and those things. But other than that, like competing, it, it really just puts it on the line and it's adrenaline rush and, you know, like there's one piece inside of me that I feel like would be hungry if I didn't do it. Like wow. I would feel like there was something missing. At least for now, I feel like I am hungry to compete because I enjoy it. And it really, it, it's a, just another level of intensity in a sense. It's, it's like you're, I guess, simulating parachute diving for some time and then you <laughs> want to try the real thing yeah. in one sense. <laughs> That's a good comparison. Now, through competition specifically, you know, obviously always improving, always improving. But when do you feel like you had like a turning point where you felt like you're more into like a professional level of competition? Was there a specific match or competition that sticks out in your mind? I think around like when I was a blue belt, I started competing already as a juvenile. This was back in 2013. Hmm. And so I won Europeans as a juvenile absolute at least and you know already then i started like feeling like this was something that i really want to go for but i know like i knew there wasn't much money to be made <laughs> in yeah. jiu-jitsu so you know i steadily did my education beside it and all those things thankfully there are some systems here in norway where you can kind of like apply for like sports leave and all those things oh, so wow. that it's easier for you to travel around and do some things it's not much. It's like, I think it's like 10 days a year that you get basically yeah. to go and travel. And so that's when it, things started picking up already then. But as I got my purple belt and I wanted to compete in purple belt, no gi worlds, mm -hmm. that's when I felt like it really was kicking off. Cause that was one of my first, yeah, that was my first world championship I competed in. Wow. Okay. And so I got to the finals. <laughs> I lost to Craig Jones. <laughs> uh, Who's that? You know? <laughs> yeah, now I didn't know who Craig Jones was at that time, but he was a really nice guy because he came to me and was like, oh, dude, it's awesome. It's Australia versus Norway. Like no American, no Brazilian there. It's like super cool. And he he was a cool dude. Yeah, no, he just wrecked me. He like rare naked choked me like straight away. And my throat was like hurting for I think two weeks after that. Oh, man. Yeah, it was pretty bad. But hey, it was it was all fair. And then later on, I figured out he, what he became to be but funny enough now I, every time i see the picture which they have on their gym somewhere in australia is the podium picture from purple Bust. <laughs> all right <laughs> oh man yeah and obviously you're competing and all of a sudden boom you hit this level of fame or just being well known and being more of like a household name especially you got the, the tarika plata of course 
and your name's being mentioned more and more with the worlds, ADCC. What is that like? Is that kind of like if you were to talk to the Tariq from like, I don't know, five, six years ago and talk to that guy now, what would you tell him? Man, like I would not expect to get where I am today, for sure, for sure. But yeah, just keep working. And like, you know, as long as you're doing everything with good intentions and like, I mean, there's so many things like be a good human being and things will eventually come in a sense. <laughs> Sometimes you have to like work for things and you have to be stubborn. You have to like make a point, but yeah, all good intentions. <laughs> Recovery. Do you do anything specific like ice baths, saunas, you know, things like that? Yeah, like sauna and ice bathing has been part of my like because I was working as a lifeguard at this place where they had a sauna and there was coincidentally an ocean like the ocean right beside it, which is not always that warm, but it was open during the winter as well. So then it was like around four or five degrees and like uh, Celsius degrees in wow. the water. And so uh, pretty cold, but the nice part, you go up, you go into the sauna, so you get warm again. But personally, like, I don't feel like that's for the recovery that much. Recovery wise, I feel sleep and nutrition is much more important. Like if you have the time and you want to do it for sure, if there's one thing that I really like about the ice bathing is that, you know, you really control your breath and you learn to control that panic, you know, especially yeah. like as you hit that ice and you're like, <gasps> you know, and if you can like recover your breath and you can like come back into that calm state straight away, then uh, that's, a, that's a very good thing to have and to take away like for any other scenario any stress, uh, stressful scenario in, in life in general. It's so amazing. Yeah. The ice bath, there's such a, uh, like, I don't know, it's a mental training aspect to it. Obviously there's the physical benefits and bring inflammation down, but there's a mental aspect. And speaking of that, like going into just, you know, how would you approach training, gearing up for worlds, gearing up for competitions? Cause it's more than just showing up and listening to coach and going through the motions. There's a certain mindset that you have to have as you're going through. For sure. I mean, you look at the brackets, you kind of know who you're facing the first matches. You do take some time to study those matches a little bit, you know. And it's easy to get caught into their game like, oh, shit, I have to be careful about this. I have yeah. to be careful about that. So you kind of have to watch out to not get like completely sucked into what they're about to do, but more focus on what you want to do. So that's one mindset that's important. And also it's important to think like, why shouldn't I win? You know, like I, I have... Yeah just as much chance, just as much, you know, you got to believe in yourself. And even though their names are big, even though they're somebody who's been tapping at everyone, you know, like go out there and prove them wrong, you know? So you got to have to have that kind of mindset where you're not afraid to do your best, even though it's someone extraordinary or whatever. Yeah. Other than that, like, I mean, like it's the, really depends on the person individual. Like I feel me, I need to hype myself up quite a bit. Some people, they get very nervous. So you kind of have to chill down, uh, dial it down a little bit and pull yourself back, I guess. And for me, I, you know, you'll find me kind of like yawning more and being like low energy. So oh, I have to the other end. Yeah, I'm at the other end. And then I have to like hype myself up to like get to that point where I really like, oh, now I want to go. <laughs> And so, you know, music is a great tool to use. And there's some thought processing, like that you're like, I visualize a lot going out to the mat, just the five, like 10, five seconds, the first seconds of the match, I want to visualize what's going to happen. And then like, 
okay, if that doesn't happen, I'll do this. If that doesn't happen, I do this. And you have kind of like a little bit of a plan in the beginning. It doesn't have to go deep, but just like having that constant repetition in your mind really helps me kind of, you know, ignite as soon as I'm there. That's great. Uh, amazing. Yeah. It really lines things up. And who's like, as you've been coming up, who's been as far as jujitsu or just athletes in general, who's inspired you the most along the way? Oh man. Uh, there's, there's a couple of names. Um, we do have obviously some cool athletes here in Norway. Like I have to mention Langacker, Tommy Langacker and Espen Matisen. Awesome two athletes. But, you know, if I look outwards, you know, I get inspired by Mikey Musumeci. Obviously, he's, he's phenomenal. And there's Lackling Giles is one of my favorites to watch as well. Super technical. I love his instructionals as well. Super mm -hmm. good. And, man, like athletes in general, like old school, Marcelo Garcia, Ricardo Liborio, awesome guy also to watch. Yeah, <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> Sorry. That's awesome. You know, yeah, and having your degree of success... You know, what would you think? Obviously, there's training, there's your heart that goes into it. But in your own words, what would you think's giving you your most success? What's helping you along the way the most, you think? Definitely, like, constantly trying to improve and never settle for less in a way, right? In one way, you're never content with what you have. You constantly want to work uh, for more and you want to improve. You want to make things more efficient. And one of those things is, like, asking questions constantly like you know be respectful obviously like of people's time and like you can't just expect everyone to answer all your questions all the time but thankfully i had like a lot of higher belts to help me out step by step the whole way so at frontline academy in oslo some days you can find 10 black belts on the mat which is i would say very rare if you go to scandinavia in general mm. at least it was just a few years ago now there's a lot more black belts with my generation and we had black belts who have different types of styles so we had some guys who play deep half guard we had some guys who play you know spider lasso and just having all these different styles really helped me like put together this jigsaw puzzle where okay this is what i'm going to be using very much and yeah lucky in one sense like i had the right people around me i had the right consistency uh, like to training i wanted to keep going and the motivation was there and the social bit was there you know so i would consider my lucky to have all of those things in place all those factors yeah amazing you know for other people listening you know some people are still in that journey right whether they're this is their first year of jujitsu or they've been doing it for a decade or so there's that, a subject that gets brought up a lot some tips you have for people when they start getting to that plateauing or they feel like they can't they're hitting that wall and they can't improve for whatever reason you got some good tips to keep that lid off so to speak so uh in jiu-jitsu there's a lot of plateaus <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's for sure and they come and they go and to be honest it's like there can be different reasons why are you feeling like you're stuck one of the reasons might be that you're training too much and you're not recovering so you're like basically just digging yourself further down and you're thinking like, okay, if I just train more, it's going to work better. But you know, your mind needs to rest, your body needs to rest. And sometimes I would say even like a week off can give you a lot, mm. like coming back, you will be, you know, more focused and more motivated. And one week in comparison to like, let's say 10 years of jujitsu, then it's nothing, you know, yes. Yeah. in the big grand picture, it's nothing. So, so you have to, obviously it's hard to look at it that way when you're 
a white belt, a blue belt, but sometimes that can be the case. Other than that, it can be also like, you know, you have to take a step back and analyze what's happening during the roles. What's happening? Why am I getting stuck in this situation all the time? Is it a mistake that I'm doing there? Is it a mistake that I'm doing like, let's say three steps back in a sense. And when you go a little bit analytical on top of it, you kind of can trace yourself to what the problem is and maybe you can fix it. Maybe you want to change something, you know, all those things. So that could be also a big step in the right direction. And then it's like, you know, sometimes I like to change up with between gi and no gi. That can do a lot for you, you know, like it's a very slight variation, but it's a very variation in a case. Yeah. And also like if you're very determined on working on one certain position for a month, then and you feel like nothing is going well with that position, sometimes you're going to have to put that technique or that position in, on the shelf and then revisit it in maybe let's say two, three months, and then yeah. maybe it makes more sense, you know? Like an example, I would say it's it's very normal though, but it's like the, you know, from Mount Cross Collar Choke, classic Hodger Gracie technique. Yeah. You learn it as a white belt, but you know, I would say probably I didn't use it efficiently until I was a brown belt. Hmm. And it's it's like, you know, you learn it, but you didn't understand it. You didn't like put it together. Right. And I feel like that's one of those techniques, like, and, and there's several of them for sure. Well, yeah, that's such a helpful mindset on it too, because there's always ways to keep going and moving forward instead of just feeling nice and stuck. What's like the worst injury you ever had to overcome? I would say my shoulder, this shoulder was dislocating for a while. And now this shoulder is bad, but this shoulder is, it was bad a couple of years ago. And so I had like one year where it was sliding in and out of my, like oh. the socket for a while. So that was, that, that took some time. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously I, I didn't like, I could have done it much better. I trained too early and then it got re-injured. So it was a very like long process just because I couldn't stay away from training and I could rehab properly. And other than that, I've had several like other things like tendonitis in both of my forearms. I've had an ankle sprain two, three times from footlocks. And yeah. That's jujitsu, yeah. Yeah, that's jujitsu. <laughs> I would say I would consider myself lucky in that sense. Like I've never right. had anything too bad. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. But yeah, it's you know, especially I think the correct training combined with recovery and correct rest, it sounds like that's a very good preventative. And it surprises me. You know, I, I a lot of people who not just in jujitsu, just like working out with weights even or or whatever. They just do their workout and they don't stretch or do any sort of recovery or, or to hit it. They don't, like you said, overtrain, which is super common, right? At least in the case where people are not sleeping well, restless, you know, there's some symptoms. I don't remember the whole list, but there's some symptoms that are common if you're having, like, if you're overtrained. And one of them is like sweating at night and being restless and can't sleep. And, and already then you're kind of like, because you can't recover, you're destroying your recovery. And then it just right. keeps like, yeah, it just goes down further, further, further. And sometimes you're like tunnel vision, so it's hard to see, but yeah, that's where I think a lot of coaches, you know, they have to be more on top of that with athletes who are trying to really like pursue competing, but in a gym where you have, let's say 250 students, it's hard to keep track of everybody. So I right. can't blame them either. Yeah. And is that something you do as well? I know you could say like up to a week of rest or whatever, but like you doing twice a day, for example, are you 
sort of, let's call it off season, so to speak. Are you training harder there and then gearing up the peak towards competition or are you sparring less at certain times? Definitely like uh, towards competition, it gets more specialized. So there's more sparring, even like as we get closer to the competition, I'll even shorten the, the trainings a little bit. So it's not long trainings, but more intense. And I'll usually stick to the time that I'm going to be fighting just so that's like kind of indoctrinated into my yeah. body. But sometimes I like to do shorter rounds, more explosive with some rest in between and just like push the pace. So things kind of help each other out, but let's say off season, I would start like one, just thinking about recovering from, if there's any like small minor, like injuries and stuff like that, you want to recover from, try maybe to alternate between, you know, like try to do some other sports like swimming, try to do some climbing just to like move your body in a different manner. And maybe you're like all those classic tight yeah. hip flexor tight yeah. you know yeah. shoulders all these things that are common in jiu-jitsu you want to kind of like do some other activities just to prevent that and and eventually like i think like after two weeks i probably just start doing jiu-jitsu only and during that time you kind of want to build yourself up with some strength training so it's like yeah technical or more strength than it is sparring but then it's like a lot more technique and you want to learn new stuff and you want to add new things to your game and as soon as you come back to take it like to competition again you're not going to want to learn new things anymore you want to kind of stick to what you feel like is comfortable and then keep working on those things so yeah definitely there's there's some phases here yeah i don't remember the word for it but there's a good word for it when you're like putting things in blocks and like um, uh, cycling it periodization yeah periodization thank you there you go we got there there together (laughs) yeah you know, kind of in tandem with that too, another thing that comes up a lot, I love picking the brains of champions like yourself, is fatigue or just gassing out. What are some amazing things that are, or just even straightforward things you've done at yeah, people listening? Because one of the things I hear the most is that it's just, I just fatigue, no matter how much I train, no matter, they can't figure it out. What are some good tips you have for that? Um, so, my, at least what I see from a lot of jitsu people, what they do is they train hard, they spar hard. And so that does like high intensity uh, training, right? And like you're working with a high pulse during these sessions. And then they'll go the next day and they'll do a CrossFit session, which is high pace, high, you know, all these. In my opinion, I think it's better to do like low heart rate, spinning, swimming, running, whatever, and build up, let's call it like a fuel tank. You want to build up your fuel tank, like how big it is. And then later you're going to work on how strong your motor is with the explosiveness and the, you know, all that power. And also if you can use that power training and use that explosiveness in jujitsu, instead of doing it in a CrossFit class, I think you also get more specific kind of explosiveness and situations. And also it doesn't ruin your training that much as you will get more fatigued from that intensive training and then going to the next session you'll probably feel like shit but now definitely more of those low heart rate sessions is a great tool to use one of the things that i like to talk about it's like a work economics in a sense i don't know how if it's the correct term to use but it's like as you get better in jiu-jitsu you learn to save energy in certain spots and certain things and that's a big part of the game if you can make someone waste their energy and get them exhausted while you're still like up and you're good 
this is a part of the tactical fight. That's why, like, if you're on top and you can put your weight on top of them and you can make them use a lot of energy to keep you off. That's yeah. a big part of the game. And this is going to exhaust them. And, you know, just, there's there's so many things. Like, even, like, Neon Belly or those scenarios where you feel like they're breathing out and then you just push a little bit. Just a, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. So you interrupt their breathing and all these small things that, you know, it's a part of the cardio game in a sense. You want to, you want to have your stamina here and their stamina yeah. down low. So if you think of it as a fighting game, it makes sense that way. <laughs> I love the way you were. That's amazing. And also, like, when you're competing, there's a degree, obviously, getting to where you're the most comfortable and the most trained, right? You, can, you know the alls and pros and cons in these positions. Another reason why that, like you said, the Trico Plata was catching all these guys eight times in that one in 2015 because they didn't see it coming. But there's also a degree of style clashing within the art. You kind of go into that aspect. So, uh, I mean, everybody knows rock, paper, scissors, right? So then, like, here's Jiu-Jitsu, the same thing. Like, you see someone beat someone. And you think, okay, just because that guy beat him, then he's going to beat that other guy. But it doesn't work that way. It, it can yeah. be a full circle sometimes, you know, and that's where style comes in. So like, just because that guy plays that certain game, he will be able to have an advantage against the other guy. And that's where you have to study your matches. You have to look at your opponents. You have to see their strong sides, their weak sides. Sometimes I like, oh shit, yeah, he, he pulls only to that side or he usually does this. And that will kind of give me an indicator for what I can expect during the match. And obviously people do that to me as well. So it's hard for me to set up Tarikopladas right. because people usually know that it's coming, right? They got the, the video on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, that's how it is. And so like, in a sense, you could say nobody's unbeatable. And if there's always someone who has the style to beat you, it's just a question of when and where, in a sense. That's awesome. And then another point I'd like to ask is you've had some amazing moments in your career so far. In your mind, in your world, what has been some of your career highlights to you? Like what really stands out? Ooh, I would say like most of the times I've competed in Europeans and Worlds has been pretty awesome. I would say like, okay, there's some names when I beat them, I thought it was a kind of like a breakthrough in one sense. It was like, but many of these names, they became names afterwards, to be honest, in one sense. But so I fought Kainan Duarte in Purple Belt in Open Weight Worlds. So then I beat him by two points. That was pretty, yeah, big breakthrough for my part, but yeah later next year he was one division heavier and and it was totally different <laughs> <laughs> every year it cycles through different <laughs> but i mean like there's some fights that i feel like mean more to me but when it comes to competitions like i would say worlds copa podio in in brazil was pretty cool too i got on second place tommy langanker got on first place so two Norwegians coming to brazil and taking the podium was pretty cool uh, yeah, so there's there's come some memorable moments throughout this. <laughs> what is that like for you too? Like traveling, I mean, you're probably obviously used to it, but traveling for all these different countries and doing elite level competition, what is that like? It's awesome. It's awesome to travel around and to, you know, to get invited into different cultures, different, you know, cuisines, food, whatever. And yeah. it's like you have... It's like you have a VIP pass when you do jiu-jitsu. It's crazy. It's not necessarily when you do seminars. Like, obviously, if you're doing seminars, people are treating you nice and, and they will take you to this and this place because, you know, you're a guest and it's, it's the right way to host someone. 
But even like, let's say when I went to visit Hawaii and I went to this place to train and we were training with some dudes and it was good vibes. Later, I went to this marketplace where some of the guys that I trained with was selling some stuff and they were like, hey, man, take this, take this. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, like, a, it's like a total different level of trust. So I think having that kind of jujitsu side to it when you're traveling around is amazing. You know, like the, it comes with some other sides to it as well. You know, I have a family at home. I have a daughter and, and like this past semester, like from January to pretty much up until words, I was traveling maybe like three or four times a month. So I was quite a much away, oh, wow. you know, and then in some cases it gets too much, you know, and then you have to find a balance between those things. But then it's like, okay, some parts in life you have to grind out some patches and then you yeah. can take it more easy in certain patches so like this july i've been pretty much at home the whole month and taking it easy with the family and we've been doing some nice things and you know so you have to find some balance in life <laughs> yeah you have to you have to balance it out what places visiting wise has been the biggest culture shock for you it's hard to say because i feel like my ethnicity wise yeah. i'm half moroccan half norwegian so I, I feel like I have a scale where I got like two ends of it. So even like when I traveled to Turkey or Greece, I feel like, ah, this is makes <laughs> sense. It's like Morocco pretty much, you know? And then <laughs> if, if I travel to Sweden, it's very like, you know, close to Norway. It's so I kind of like understand that culture in that sense, but culture shock, I would like the U S is a culture shock for me, to be honest. Oh, wow. Yeah, for sure. Like there's some values, there's some things that I can understand, but at the same time, uh, like coming from where I come from, I look at them differently. Interesting. Uh, so that's definitely like in general, traveling abroad is always interesting because you find out so much, but like us, I would say is also a culture shock. Interesting. Yeah. It's a big melting pot. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot here, man. And kind of in closing here, one thing I always like to ask is future goals. What are your future goals? What are you aiming to do here? So my thought was training towards SDCC trials Europeans now. And uh, mm -hmm. so I've been having a little bit of an injury now. So we'll see how I uh, kind of get into the shoulder that one. Yeah, the shoulder. Yeah. But eventually I recover from that. And if I don't make it for the ADCC trials now, then I will do it for the next one. So that's the idea. And my thought is to focus on Nogi up until December. Going for Nogi Europeans and Nogi Worlds is at least some of the plans that I'm making right now. Besides that, Probably going to put on my gi in January and do Europeans and focus on gi a little bit the next half year. And then I'll, you know, switch around with it. As if you look further into the future, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you know, now I'm 27. So when I'm closing up on 30, I want to start looking to build up a gym. Oh, I don't cool. know how it's going to look or how it's going to be at some point, but it's probably going to be, you know, small start renting and build up a member base and then eventually find something bigger you know and at least that's what that's what i'm thinking and it's a whole like pay it forward concept pass that knowledge along and i i enjoy teaching as well you know like i already have a bachelor's degree in physical education so hmm. like oh, okay. for me it makes sense to teach i do like teaching like in schools but teaching jujitsu is just a little it's like that it gives me that little extra thing that I really like. And it's like, if you can find joy in other people's accomplishments, it's teaching is a great, 
think you can do. You know, it, for me, it doesn't really matter if you compete or you, you don't. Like, if you can progress in jujitsu and you can, you feel those accomplishments, I will also feel them for you, and then <laughs> I will be happy. So, yeah, that's one of the the good things about it. And there's something amazing on that coaching side, right? There's something about helping your student do well and moving forward. For sure, for sure. You know, you remember when they came in for the first time, insecure, didn't speak loudly, you know, all those things. And then, you know, some years <laughs> forward and they're completely changed and they're, you can't make them shut up anymore. You know, it's like <laughs> constant. That's awesome, man. Well, Tariq, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, man. I've been following your work for a while here and looking forward to what you do in the future. Thank you, man. You've been an amazing host. Thank you for having me. And the awesome questions. I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. Was. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.